um, as you see, my sermon's titled Almost Persuaded Evangelism. Tonight I want to talk about our witness, uh, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, we call it evangelism. And to many people, that word sounds very intimidating. And, you know, it conjures up images of Bible-thumping preachers in tents or these TV evangelists that you see and uh, these big personalities. And most of us would be very uncomfortable being in those situations. And there are a lot of books on evangelism. There is The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman, Evangelism Handbook by Alvin Reed, The Complete Evangelism Guidebook by Scott Davidson, Becoming a Contagious Christian by Bill Hables and Mark Middleberg, Questioning Evangelism by Randy Newman, and the list goes on. Um, Now, I haven't read any of these books. I just looked all those titles up just to see how many books there was, and it just kept on going on and on. But I say that because there's a lot of people that give this list and list of what evangelism is all about. And beyond evangelism, we also have apologetics. And everybody's familiar, well, most everybody should be familiar with that. It's defined like this, an attempt to remove obstacles to the faith so a person can see and believe Christianity is true and satisfying. So basically what you're doing is you're trying to lay out the cause for Christ. You're trying to lay out, hey, here's the reasoning for Christianity. And some people feel that apologetics is the best way to lead people to God. Um, you know, Jesus and the Bible in general. It seems like as when we want to talk to people about Christ, we want to be so ready. We want to have all our ducks in a row. We want to, we feel like we have to be very educated and we feel like, you know, that we have to anticipate any question someone might have because we might stumble and not have the answer for a question they might ask. And to some people, that fear gives them a fear of even displaying the gospel at all. Because they're afraid they might get it wrong. They're afraid they might say something wrong or do something wrong. Uh, and thinking, uh, can I do this? Can I talk to somebody about Jesus Christ? Um, perhaps we're afraid because of those things. And, you know, we, we don't, we also want to look at all the scientific evidence out there. And somebody might bring up something about the world and we don't, we're not versed in science enough to feel comfortable Arguing with them, so to speak. Um, but I got news for you. The gospel speaks for itself. See, that's the beauty of it is, is the gospel saves. We don't save. The gospel saves. And that's the part of the thing that we have to remember is that we don't have to have the perfect argument to talk to somebody about Christ. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father. Lord, we just thank you so much for who you are. You know, where this morning we just heard the message on the cross and what you did, Lord, for us and how it was described in the Old Testament and how the Old Testament points to you, Lord Jesus Christ. And now it shows that a perfect sacrificial lamb was given, Lord, for our transgressions. And Lord, just thank you for that. Lord, as I... uh, Bring this, bring your word forward this morning. I ask you to be with me, to guard my lips and the words that I speak, Lord. Let them be yours. Let everything that I say glorify and honor you.
Lord, I pray this thing in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read to you from the 26th chapter of Acts. But before I do that, I'm going to kind of give you a little background starting around the 22nd chapter. This is where Paul goes to Rome and he's going to meet with the elders of the way at the time Christianity was called. Uh, and he's going to meet with James and the elders. And some of these Jews from Asia saw him in the temple and they saw him talking and they started stirring up the people around him and saying all kinds of different things. And then people were grabbing Paul and they start beating him up and uh, hitting him. And uh, what happens is confusion arouses the Romans and the, the Roman tribute and he got some soldiers and centurions. He sent them down there and they break up this big fight and they grab Paul and they're, uh, they're bringing him back to the, uh, the barracks. On the way back, Paul says, hey, let me talk to the people. Let me explain to them, you know, what's going on. So he gets up there and he explains to them first. He talks to them. He gives his road to Damascus speech and lets them know, first of all, that he was a Pharisee. What's really neat about what Paul does, this is pretty ingenious, he sees that there are Sadducees and he sees there are Pharisees. And he starts talking about the Pharisees and the hope of the resurrection that the Sadducees did not believe in, that the Pharisees did. So what he gets, he gets fighting out there amongst those people and the Pharisees are going, wait a second, what he's saying is true, you know, and they're arguing back and forth. Um, but still, there are a lot of people that are screaming, they want him uh, flogged, they want him beat up. Um, but he explained, he gets, hey, look, I'm, I'm a Jew that was, I, I was strict by the law. I mean, I was one of those kind of people. In fact, I persecuted the way. And I was, you know, I was persecuting the way to, to death, you know, delivering both men and women. And I was given testimony regarding their, you know, uh, who they were, and, you know, as we know, he held the clothing while Stephen was stoned to death, and he approved that, uh, and he was telling these people that. Um, and, of course, the people were starting to scream for him to die, you know, and so the Reverend Tribune goes, and he tells the soldiers, okay, in order to examine him, let's examine him by flogging him. I thought, that's a pretty tough way to do an examination, right? But they figure they'll get the truth out of it and start beating you. Well, Paul says, is it right to flog a Roman? And they're going, what? So Paul says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. You know, and in a tribune say, look, I paid for my Roman citizen. And Paul says, no, I've been a Roman since birth. You know, and not, and from, uh, uh, he said, my situation is, you know, I don't, it, not only shouldn't you be beating me, you shouldn't even chain me at all, you know, until I've been convicted or prosecuted. So, um, with that situation, he kind of lets them go and says, okay, we're going to take you and we're going to take you to the governor and get you out of here and get you uh, in a situation where it's a little more safe. So he takes him to Caesarea. And so he goes to Caesarea and there he is uh, with Felix. And Felix is the governor. And now during this time, the, um, there was a sect of Jews that decided they were going to take an oath. And they said there was around 40 or more of them. And they said, we're going to take an oath that we will not eat nor drink until we kill Paul. And that's how serious they were about taking him out. So they make this pact. In the meantime, this oath has been heard over by Paul's nephew, who goes to the tribune and tells him. 
And the tribune gets to the centurions. He says, look, take 200 soldiers and get him over here to Caesarea. Let's get him protected. And they, in the middle of the night, they take Paul and they bring him here to Caesarea. Felix keeps Paul in prison for two years. But he also lets people visit Paul. So a lot of people are coming and going and, and he's able to visit people during. In fact, even Felix meets Paul several times. And often he thinks that Paul's going to give him some money or something. That was one of his expectations. But anyway, this it makes me wonder about these Jews that gave that oath. I mean, they got to be pretty emaciated right after two years of not eating or drinking. I imagine some of them had to keel off, or uh, some. I, I imagine most of them, if not all of them, broke their broke their oath. But Felix is replaced now by the governor Festus. Okay, so this guy this guy goes up to Jerusalem, and the elders and the chief priests lay out their case. They're, they haven't forgotten. They're laying out their case against Paul, and they're telling him, bring him here, and uh, we're going to, you know, let's try him here. Bring him here from Caesarea. Well, the governor of Festus says, no, I'm not going to do him. You give these guys come to Caesarea where I'm going. And it wasn't Festus by himself because God had told Paul, you're not going to die by these guys. You're going to Rome. I have plans for you in Rome. So when God has plans... And that's when he's going to execute his plan. It doesn't matter what anybody else's plans are. It's going to happen. So he uses, obviously, Festus. And Festus says, no, you guys are going to come here. And so Festus asks Paul, hey, would you like to go to Jerusalem? And he says, no, I appeal to Caesar. And he said, fine, you appeal to Caesar? Then to Caesar you will go. Well, in the meantime, King Herod is visiting Caesarea. And King Herod Agrippa he really was the last of the um, of the Herod line, was visiting Caesarea and Festus explained to Paul's situation to him that as a Roman citizen, Paul appealed to Caesar. Now, Agrippa stated that he would like to hear from this Paul. So I'd like to hear from myself. Festus said that he had found nothing from Paul that deserved death. And he said, if he's going to send Paul to Rome, at least he should be able to indicate what kind of crime he's going to, you know, that he committed. So that brings you to Acts 26. And I'm going to read this from Acts 26. I better wear glasses here. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa. I am going to make my defense today all the accusations of the, against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is well known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain, as they earnestly worship day and night. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises from the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to the foreign cities. In this connection, 
I journeyed to Damascus, to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins in place among those who are sanctified by Satan. By faith in me. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I am not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, that throughout and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I am speaking true and rational words, for the king knows about these things, into whom I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time you would persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God and that not only you, but also all who hear me in this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice and those were sitting with him. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to see Okay. So... What was Paul's defense? Obviously, this was his personal defense. His defense was the gospel. And what was he doing? He said, all I'm doing is preaching what you guys have been preaching about forever. That the Christ was going to come. This was, the only difference between Paul and them is Paul found the Messiah and they denied him. But what he was preaching was exactly what they have been preaching for generations. And so that's what he was saying. That was his defense. His defense was the gospel. That was his defense. So Paul gives his testimony. He does it twice from Acts 22 to 26. He talks about his conversion on that. And just like I said, from 22 to 26, uh, the gospel is his defense. Now, again, we talked about apologetics. Apologetics being, again, defined as an attempt to remove obstacles to the faith so a person can see and believe Christianity is true and satisfying. Now, there are many books on apologetics as well. I didn't list any here. But C.S. Lewis is probably considered one of the great people of apologetics. I, I like this 
thing what he says, one of his arguments he says, and C.S. Lewis is a professed atheist turned Christian, and he says, my argument, God, was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. He said, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? He said, a man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe to when I called it unjust? And he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And he said, for this, when you talk about when people say, you know, hey, how can there be this God destroyed? Look at all these things that are happening, the faith destroyed. He said, a faith that is destroyed by war or pestilence cannot really be worth the trouble of destroying. I think those were pretty, uh, pretty neat things that, and perhaps, uh, another apologist, uh, books that you might have read. How many have read like um, A Case for Christ or A Case for Faith? Have you ever read those by Lee Strobel? Okay. And Lee was a, uh, before he became a uh, Christian writer, he was a writer for the uh, Chicago Tribune. And in his book, A Case for Faith, Strobel interviews both devout Christian apologists and he also a well-known Christian evangelist preacher turned agnostic, Charles Templeton. I don't know if you know who Charles Templeton was, but Charles Templeton was a good friend of Billy Graham's. They were going up together. They were like the best friends, inseparable. Um, Templeton was a former, uh, he actually had his own church in the early days. He had 1,200 members and it was growing. But he always battled. He always wrestled with one particular aspect of life. He said suffering. In his interview with Strobel, Temple stated that a photograph in Life magazine would was really the tipping point for him. He said he saw a northern African woman staring up to the heavens holding her dead child because of, who died of thirst because of a devastating drought. And Temple said at that moment he thought, is it possible to believe that there's a loving, caring creator when all this woman needed was rain? He said that this event led him to think about other disasters, the plagues that happened, both good and bad people, you know, across the globe. And it being clear to him that this world could not have been created by a deity, a deity that loves. And at the end of the interview, when Lee brought up Jesus, he asked Templeton if he believed Jesus existed. Templeton said, yes. He said, he started tearing up. And he said that he missed Jesus. He said that Jesus was the most important person in his life and he adored him. That he felt that Jesus was the highest moral standard, showed the least duplicity, and had the greatest compassion of anyone who ever lived. He believed that Jesus was the greatest living human being, just not a deity. Strobel pointed out that the same historical documents that Templeton used to show the inspiring moral life of Jesus are the exact same records that affirm his deity. So he was arguing from a point that how wonderful Jesus was, but he wasn't deity. Well, those same arguments pointed to that. But we hear this argument all the time, right? I can't believe in a God who allow these things to happen. How many people have heard that from anyone? Everybody has here. Let me point to, you know, look what's happening around the world. You say there's a wonderful, good God. How, how can he be omnipresent, omniscient? How can he be all powerful and bad things happen to good people? That doesn't make any sense. Whatsoever. Is God all powerful? Is he loving? Is he good? Even if su- if uh, suffering exists? You know, we can understand if villains were the only ones that got cancer, you know, or broke their backs or got Parkinson's or, you know, but the innocent children, that 
It's hard for us to understand those things. Is it possible that God can exist as omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing, and all-caring? Is it possible? And the answer is obviously yes. If anybody actually looked at the universe and looked at how everything's come together and the discoveries that we have made and to say that there's, this is, there's not a creative design, to me, that would be a harder argument. To me, that would be hard to swallow to say that two things came together, smashed together and all these things and it just worked out perfectly. Weren't we lucky? You know, I think to me, you gotta be really, you know, uh, out there to believe that. Well, Paul tells us in Romans 1.20 that God's invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So people are without excuse. Basically, what he's saying is the world shows God. He said the world is the one that does. We, we can see God in the world. We might not know who he is. Somebody might need to tell us about Jesus Christ. But you can't look around this world and say, wait a second, this isn't just all happen chance here. We also get caught up in this life and, and we concern ourselves. We forget to concern ourselves with our real home, don't we? Um, uh, what's our path, Tony? I forgot his name for a second. See, he's gone one week and I forget him. Uh, Tony mentioned one time, he was talking about that we need to have our head in the clouds. Basically, we got to have the heavenly thinking. You know, we got to be thinking about that life. And why is that? The average lifespan is 79 years. That's the average lifespan. If you took a rope and you took it around the world 100,000 times, our life here wouldn't even be the fray on the beginning of that rope. But this is where all our concentration is. This is where we think about when we think about suffering, we think about, uh, you know, pain. We think about unfairness, injustice, and we think... That's what we're concentrating. God said, I'm giving you forever. I sent my son down to die for you so that you can live forever. He said, and first of all, you want free will. You want to be able to. God gave us a perfect world. I mean, it was perfect. Absolutely 100% perfect. You know, we hear that in Genesis. He says, it was very good. He said, when he looked at it, he says, it was very good, right? So, God doesn't lie. The world was good. We messed it up. Let me ask you, how many people here have ever taught their children or anybody to drive? Have you ever sat with a teenager and taught them to drive? Okay, I have a question for you. Why did you do that? Do you not love them? I mean, you can't love them if you teach your children to drive. You can't. I mean, look, don't you know that according to the most recent teenage driver safety statistics compiled by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, approximately 2,500 adolescents, 12 to 19, died in motor vehicle crashes in 2018. And approximately 297,000 non-fatal injuries occurred among adolescents as a result of motor vehicle crashes in 2018. So we uncaring? Do we not love our children because we teach them to drive? I'm just curious. So we, we want God to put a bubble wrap around us every single day, but we put our kids in situations that are dangerous. And we say, well, that, that's life. they got to live life. And that's what we want. We want it both ways. We want to be able to have complete free will, but then we want to blame God because we screwed his world up. And then we say, well, it's not just. We don't want justice. We don't want God's justice. 
Because we know what we deserve. Because God said, all fall short of the glory of God, right? If I lied at age five, and that's the only thing I ever did, I'm done. I'm undone. So all I can do is fall in the mercy and grace of God. So we look at to blame God. You know, we have to be pretty arrogant, don't we? He's saying, look, 79 years to eternity. Give me this short period of time. Give me your life. Give it to me. Give me your 79 years. And, you know, probably a lot less than that because you may not have converted, converted at five years of age. Whatever time that you saw, Lord, give me the rest of that life and turn it over to me. And guess what I'm going to give you? I'll give you eternal life. Ever and ever and ever. And I think that's part of the problem is that we don't think in the heavenly way. Um, and you know in your heart, every one of us in here, in here knows in our heart that still quiet voice. We hear it. We know it. And sometimes it's louder. And then sometimes we want to quiet it because we want to do something that is opposite what we, te- we feel God's telling us to do. And it might not be something really bad. It's just that we're just saying, well, I kind of want to do this. You know, it's like, I need you to do this. I kind of want to do this. You know, and so we kind of snuff out that if we can. And we struggle. All of us do. You know, we struggle with faith. It's hard sometimes. This life is not easy. You know, if it was. Here's why I see Jesus understanding us so well. And I say I brought this up this morning. You know, when Mary and Martha comes to him and said, my brother died, you know, and here's Jesus, you know, standing there. What's he do? He weeps with them. Why? Why couldn't he just say, take a break. I'm going to bring him out of the tomb. Just settle. You know? I mean, that would have been me. I would have just been smiling the whole time like this. And then she's like, what's so funny? I'm going to bring him back to life. Take it easy. His compassion was so much. I mean, you think about how he loved it. It brought Jesus to tears. The humanity of Jesus is just amazing to me that he would fall to tears when he knows in a couple more moments he's going to call Lazarus out of the grave. That's the God we have. That's the God that loves us that much that we want to blame for everything that's happening in this world. You know, God chose us. And we want mercy. In Second Corinthians 4, 7 to 9, we read, when we talk about ourselves and our suffering and we you know, don't have the perfect bodies and why can't things be better for us? Why do I have this pain? He said, but we have this treasure, the gospel, in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. We got bodies of clays of jar, jars of clay. I mean, it's they're going to be breakable. Only God's not. And remember. When you're thinking about talking about evangelism, apologetic, we don't need crafty arguments. We need to just tell the simple gospel, the simple message. It's not human intellect or discernment or clever arguments that saves. The gospel saves. The simple message that Jesus died on the cross for our iniquities, that God the Father accepted his death as full payment by raising him from the dead, whereby we are justified before a perfect and holy God. Through Christ and his righteousness. And we have become, through faith, not just heirs, but joint heirs with Christ. If we're looking for concrete proof 
irrefutable, scientific, demonstrable evidence that Jesus was in fact Lord and did not rise, and did in fact rise from the dead, you're not going to find that. And you're not going to be able to argue that. Yes, there is evidence. There is eyewitness testimony. There's scriptures. But at some point, we take a leap of faith. Billy Graham stated that the stepping off point between the evidence and the heart knowledge of God is faith. We have the evidence. The world talks of a mighty God. Like you said, uh, again, this morning we talked about what the Greeks were looking for. They had this unknown God. And Paul pointed out to him, said, let me tell you about this unknown God you have. It was a perfect segue for him to talk about that. So, God created, uh, or Jesus created, this perfect opportunity, this simple message for us to deliver. We don't have to be the most intelligent We don't have to be the most educated. That means the person that's the least educated can bring the word of God, can bring the gospel to somebody else. That's what God is asking us to do. He's not telling you to be a scholar before you go out and talk to somebody. He's not telling you to read five books on evangelism and uh, apologetics before you can talk to somebody about Christ. And, you know, our we want all this proof. Jesus' disciple Thomas stated that unless he saw with his own eyes the mark of the nails placed on his hands, and he could you put his fingers in that mark and his hand into the side that he wasn't going to believe. And when Jesus appeared to the disciples again and Thomas was with them, Jesus told Thomas to place his finger in the nail marks and to touch his side with his hand. And Thomas said, my Lord and my God. What Jesus say to him, he said, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and believed. That's you and me. We don't need irrefutable evidence. That's where the faith part comes in. We have enough evidence. The evidence is there. Um, You know, we look at all these apostles and all of them dies. Do you really think they're all going to die for a lie? Don't you think eventually one of them are going to say, you know, I really don't want to die. That was all. You know, those guys all put me up to this. When it got to me, I, I just think of me as a person... I might go along for a lie if it's paying me for a while. But when it comes to life and death, I'm sorry, at that point, I'm going to say, yeah, I was making it up. Who do I need to tell? You know, all of them except, obviously, Paul or uh, Peter, excuse me, John, you know, suffered cruel deaths. Um, But we know in our heart that Jesus is real. We understand that that's what faith tells us. God tells us whatever faith that you have, you know, that we can trust in that. And we can't truly bring people to Christ with human arguments, but only with the gospel, because the Holy Spirit's the one that works on hearts. Jesus intentionally crafted the gospel so the most lowly Christian, the least first, the least educated, is a successful evangelist as the most learned and most talented. Even Paul argued that he was no great spokesman. And he said he was even less to look at. You know, Paul said, I wasn't anything to look at. But the gospel is clear, it's simple, and it has the power to save. Why is God's word so important? John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We don't need crafty arguments. You know, the world uses crafty arguments when they try to convince somebody and and if they're not telling the whole truth. You know, we see these evangelists just promising all these things 
you know, money, um, healings, that you know, all these types of things. If you're not getting it, you don't have enough faith. If you're not doing it, God doesn't promise those. He doesn't promise those. He promises eternal life. He says we're going to suffer. He says we, our bodies are like clay jars. You know, we are going to suffer in this world, but it is a microcosm compared to everlasting life. And that's what he's offering us. We need the gospel and only the gospel. In Mark 16, 15, Jesus said to them, go into the world and proclaim the gospel, the good news, to the whole nation. The gospel is the tr- whole truth, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Spread the gospel message. Let the Holy Spirit do the convincing. And let the Holy Spirit do the convicting. It's not our job. We're not told we have to win anybody to Christ because we cannot. All we're told to do is go tell. And it's a very simple message. Don't get caught up in it. There's a lot of people that will get in arguments with you and they'll try to use all these things. They don't even want to believe. They just want to argue. That's my wife. I'm one of the kind of people. I just like to argue. It's, no matter what, I just like to argue just to see if somebody... I'll even argue the opposite of what I believe. Not in Christianity, but other things. Just to see if you got your argument together. I, just, I don't know. It's a game of mine. But it, I'm sure it's annoying. I know it's annoying. But anyway, but the point is, people will do that. They don't really want to know the truth. And that some people will do that knowing that they know the truth. And it's gnawing at them. Don't let them get under your skin. Give them the gospel. Say, that's the gospel. I'll pray for you. You know, that's the biggest thing. And what did Paul do? He told his story. Here's how I got saved. Here's what happened to me. Your testimony, nobody can refute your testimony. It's your testimony. Tell people what Christ means to you. Give them the gospel. That's all they need to hear. Because the gospel saves. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just thank you so much. I thank you for this evening. I thank you for these people here. Lord, I just ask you to be with our church, Lord. Let us pray. I pray, Lord, that we continue to hear the gospel message each and every week over and over again, because that's what we need to hear. That's what we need to bring to this world, this dying world, Lord. Lord, we we read your book. We read the revelations, Lord. We understand what the, how, the, how it ends. But we, we know that it ends for those that love you in glory. And that we will be with you forever and ever and ever. Lord, out, let us present our bodies as a living sacrifice to you. Let us live, Lord, for you. But Lord, let us rest. Let us rest in the knowledge that you did it all. That it is finished. And we thank you and, and we love you so much for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.